Well, I know I probably said this before, but I just wanted to remind you that the best way to stay awake during a speech after lunch is to give it. <laughs> so I, I hope I can stay awake and uh, keep you awake in the process. This was a lovely, lovely, Carolyn, you all did yourself so proud. Everything was delicious. Thank you. I was trying to think what my favorite was, and I, I couldn't decide. They were all so good. Thank you so much. It's great. Our first session, we looked at God being enough through the eyes of Eve. Our next session, I want us to look at our topic of God being enough through the eyes of Ruth. So I want us to go to Moab. Can you see Moab up there? It's the purple country. Uh, and we have to go back to the mid-1100s B.C., if you can imagine that long ago, far, far, far away. Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, and their two sons moved to Moab from Judah. There was a famine there. And they go, and the national god of Moab was Chemosh, who they would sacrifice humans to. He was known as the destroyer or the fish god or the subduer. He was a pagan god similar to Baal. So this couple and their two sons go to Moab, and they stay long enough for their sons to marry Moabite women. The two women were Orpah and Ruth. Uh, I have some dear friends. Ruth is one of my very favorite Bible personalities. And some dear friends found this statue of Ruth and gave it to me. You can see where she has her winnowing bag around her. And it's right where I see her every day. So eventually... Elimelech, the father, dies, and the two sons die, leaving three widows. Naomi hears that the famine is over in Bethlehem and in Judah, and she wants to return home. I mean, she has nothing. And it was the custom of that day for the daughters-in-law to stay with the mother-in-law. And so Naomi begins to pack up and begin a journey back to Judah. As she prepares to leave and everything, she tells Orpah and Ruth that they really don't need to go with her because there's no future for them in Bethlehem. They're Gentile, Moabite women. And I I looked up in the social strata of that time in, in, in Judah, the lowest person was a Gentile, unmarried woman. And so she knew that, there, she said, there's no future for you if you go with me. I can't, you can't wait for me to have sons to grow up and that you can marry. So she encourages them to stay in Moab. And Orpah says, yes, I will stay. And I the, the scripture says, and Orpah returned to her gods. I think it's one of the, 
saddest verses in Scripture. But Ruth turns to Naomi, and she says these beautiful words that we're all familiar with. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Essentially, we know this about Naomi. When she reaches Bethlehem, all of her friends see that she's back, and they come to greet her, and they say, Oh, we're so glad you're back, Naomi, which means happy. And she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Lord has dealt harshly with me. That's scripture. So she was not a happy camper. And yet, Ruth, the way Naomi was thinking and the way she felt, because she'd been deprived of her husband and her sons, that the Lord had dealt harshly with her. And she essentially told Ruth, my life is over. But you stay and build your own life because mine is over. But what is so awesome about what Ruth says to Naomi. See, Ruth is leaving her country, her parents, her future, going with an unhappy mother-in-law to a foreign country to do the lowest work possible in that society. So essentially, when Ruth says these words to Naomi, she's saying, no, Naomi, your life isn't over. Mine is. Because wherever you go, I'm going to go. And wherever you live, I'm going to live. And your God shall be my God. Ruth and Naomi reach... Bethlehem, and Ruth immediately begins, she asks Naomi, can I go glean in the fields to get food for us? And she goes and she gleans, and they stay there for a while. They stay there forever, actually. I like uh, Irving Feynman. I found this quotation. I thought it was quite interesting because no one has ever seen Ruth, and they did not have iPhones in those days to take pictures But he described Ruth in this way, whose radiant beauty of face and form neither the shadows nor the sad state of her raiment could obscure. But I think her heart was so pure that he couldn't help but describe Ruth like this. And I think he was right. So we're going to study about how Ruth believed that God was enough. First of all, she would not have left, I don't think, if she didn't believe God was enough. There's a scripture where she goes into this field to glean, and it it says she happens into the field of Boaz, and so I think she really was a very outstanding young woman because she caught Boaz's eye, And uh, he talks to her, and he says, I know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. And I think the key 
words in, that, in his discourse to her is, you have come to seek refuge under the wings of God. And I don't think she would have done that if she didn't believe God was enough. I also believe Ruth felt, because of Elimelech and Naomi and her husband's influence on her and their belief in God, that Ruth thought, if I don't go with Naomi, I will never know God any better. She wouldn't have, not if she'd stayed in Moab worshiping Chemosh. And so she was willing to come seek refuge under the wings of God. It sounds like Psalm 23. I want God to be my shepherd. I want him to meet my needs. Because Naomi was not capable of meeting any of Ruth's needs. But God was. And Ruth knew this. She left everything she knew and willingly went with Naomi to have a deeper relationship with God. As Hannah Smith said, the crowning discovery of our whole Christian life is the knowledge that God is enough. And I think Ruth had made that discovery. So even though we know that God is enough, I want us to talk about the barriers that we encounter that keep us from believing that God is enough. The first one are idols. In a way, Eve's idol was more knowledge. To be, I'd be wise as God. That was her idol. It was having the delicious fruit that she couldn't have. Um, that almost became an idol to her. But Ruth was willing to leave her idols and go to worship the true God. And I was amazed at this passage in 1 John 5, 21. John writes, he writes, he is writing this to the church. It says, dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. And so I, as I studied that, I thought that is truly outs- uh, 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 amazing that he would, at that time in, in that culture with idols everywhere, that he would specifically, he ended the book by telling these Christians, keep away from idols. It was a big uh, temptation for them in that culture, and it is in ours also. And so we replace that God is enough with an idol. It's very, very easy. And we have to remember that God is a jealous God. He doesn't want any competition in our lives. Timothy Keller, who wrote a great little book called Counterfeit Gods, said this. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. Someone else said that an idol is anything, if taken away from you, you would blame God. Also, Keller says an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart, I'm sorry, in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. 
And I mentioned earlier, you know, if only I had children, then I know my life has meaning. If only I could get married. If only I had a better job. If only this would happen. Then I know I have value and I would feel significant and secure. That thing is an idol. So what are some potential idols that we have today? Well, it's, it's amazing. In Colossians 3.5, it says, Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. So, I mean, I'm thinking, what is it that I think I've got to have that is an idol? A greedy person is an idolater. I don't even have this on. Can you all hear me? Sorry. Let me start over. <laughs> yes. Oh, I thought someone said something. Power and position can be an idol. Perfectionism can be an idol. I know I used to fight. My children would make up their beds. I mean, I needed to be so excited that they would even do it, but it would be all, you know, it wouldn't be perfect. And I had to just keep myself from going in and straightening it up again. But that can become an idol. Everything has to be perfect. Um, Being a workaholic, our work can become an idol. Being over-involved in activities can be an idol. We can get our significance and our worth from the praise and the thanks we get from working so hard in all these activities. That to the, and we do that to the neglect of our walk with God and maybe even in relating to our family as we should, being available to them. For me, I think the desire to control is an idol. I like to control. I mean, I like, this is so true. I'm not controlling. I just know what's best for everyone. (laughs) And I like this. I'm extraordinarily patient as long as I get my own way in the end. (laughs) That good. Charles Spurgeon said this, anything becomes an idol when it keeps us from God. And you all, this is, My thought on this, anything that becomes an idol that keeps us from spending time with God daily, what is it that crowds out your time alone with God? I'll give you one suggestion. This is a a lady, and I know, I, I think I showed this in simplicity, but this lady has her computer, she has the washing machine on one side and the stove on the other. She She never has to leave. She doesn't have to leave the internet. And I know in my own life, and I know from talking to so many, many women, that I feel like we are more consistent in meeting with the internet than we are with the Lord. And that is an idol. There's an old Slovenian proverb that says, speak the truth and then leave quickly afterward. So I'm out of here after. (laughs) But I am speaking to myself. I I think I've said this. You all, I've been here so many times, you've heard everything I say. But um, I finally figured out why God has me speak. It's because I need to hear what I have to say. 
And so I am speaking to myself. I like this John Bach quote. He says, idolatry is not good for anyone, not even the idols. So I, I think that you need to take some time after this day and ask God, God, what do I worship more than you? What is more important to me than you? What is it that keeps me from spending consistent, unhurried time with you? In the message, Exodus 23, this is one of the Ten Commandments. No other gods, only me. Eve's idol was knowledge, but Ruth had no idols. She was willing to forsake her idols to go and worship the true and living God. I'm impressed, I mentioned earlier, with Ruth's selflessness. She was willing to die to her future and to any happiness that she might have. And so one of the uh, barriers that we have to believing that God is enough for us is ourself. We think we can do it. We think we know what is best for us. I, uh, I mean, Orpah did this. Orpah said, you know what? You're right, Naomi. I don't want to go glean for the rest of my life and be unmarried and stay with an unhappy mother-in-law. I'm going to stay here in Moab. And so she chose for herself. I, I'm, I don't mean to keep saying this, but I want you to know I'm not too old to know that I repeat myself. <laughs> but I, the best illustration I can give is when our little three-year-old daughter uh, we were getting ready to cross the street, and I reached down to grab her hand, and I said, honey, hold mommy's hand. And she looked up at me, and she said, no, I hold my own hand. And I think this is what we do with God. Um, we're in a situation, and instead of throwing ourselves onto God and saying, God, what do you want in this situation? What do you want to do with my life? How do you want to work this out? We say, you know what, God, in this deal, I'm going to hold my own hand. And so just ourself can be a barrier. I mean, we try to manipulate circumstances. We try to get our own way because we're afraid of what God might do. We're telling God he's not enough for us, that we can handle this on our own. I want to show the old house again, and I... Again, I, just a brief synopsis. It was in this old house that I died to myself. Uh, the Lord very clearly asked me to give him the steering wheel of my life and to move over. And he wanted to take over control of my life. I was 23 years old, and I knew what he was asking me to do. Oh, no, I was 26 years old. I knew what he was asking me to do. He was asking me to die to myself. And it was a very, very precious time in my life. Again, I, I, it was a real turning point in my life. It was in July of 1965. I can remember how important it was for me to give up control of my life. I just wanted to, again, read this to you all because after... I did that, 
it was years and years and years later. I was uh, at a conference and answering some questions. And one question was how I received the call for doing what I do now, the ministry that I have now. And I said, you know, I've never received a call. And um, I thought I could tell everyone was thinking, then what are you doing here? <laughs> and, and so I said, I said, God, what am I doing here? Why am I here? Because I don't ever remember God saying, okay, now I want you to go. I want you to write a Bible study and I want you to speak. I, I've never heard that. I never wanted to do that. I never even thought about it. I've never even prayed about it. So I would rather sit home and drink tea and read Jane Austen. And so to sit down and, you know, and write and <laughs> do all this, it never entered my mind. And so I said, I've never received a call to this ministry. And, but I said, God, have you ever called me to this? I mean, I was in front of this audience and, and just immediately he said, well, Cynthia, don't you remember in the old house when you died to yourself? That was my call to you. And I said, oh, okay. And so I kind of explained that to them and they kind of rested a little bit. And, uh, but a few years after that time, I put this into writing and I want to just share it again. I know I've shared it before, but I just like it fits in here to say what I wanted to say. The father spoke. Come, child, let us journey together. Where shall we go, father? To a distant land, another kingdom. So the journey will be long. Yes, we must travel every day of your life. And when will we reach our destination? At the end of your life. And who will accompany us? Joy and sorrow. Must sorrow travel with us? Yes, she's necessary to keep you close to my side. But I only want joy. It is only with sorrow that you will know true joy. What must I bring? A willing heart to follow me. And, and what shall I do on the journey? There's only one thing that you must do. Stay close to me. Always keep your eyes on me. And, and what will I see? You will see my glory. And what will I know? You will know my heart. The father stretched out his hand. And the child knowing the great love her father had for her, placed her hand in his, and they began their journey. That's the most graphic picture I can give you. Instead of wanting to hold my own hand through life, is to place my hand in his because I know he's enough. I know he is for me and not against me. I know he will meet all of my needs. I know he will always do what is best for me. It's the best way I can describe what it is to die to self. It's Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what it is to die to self. 
A.W. Tozer said this. I like this. It's, it was in another study, but there are three marks of one who is crucified. One, he is facing in only one direction. Two, he can never turn back. And three, he no longer has any plans of his own. Isn't that good? See, Eve thought only of herself. I want this fruit. I want to be like God. So I will disobey. But Ruth did not think of herself. Ruth thought only of God and of Naomi. Another barrier that we encounter, that I feel like we encounter, is that we think that God offends us. We get offended by God. There was a public figure who was being interviewed, and he was asked about his beliefs in God, and he said, oh, I will never believe in God because he took my little sister when she was three years old. And I can never believe in a God that would do that. Well, God had offended him, and so he was not going to believe in him. And so it's easy, the more I thought about this, and, and you all, this chapter, I, I never thought of doing this chapter. This chapter is from God. Uh, 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 it was like, I want, you to, <laughs> I want you to put this chapter in the study because... People get offended by me, and it becomes a stumbling block in believing that I am enough. The greatest uh, story to exemplify this is the prodigal son. You know the story. The younger son asks for his inheritance. He takes it. He goes off into riotous living and spends all of his money and realizes that the servants in his father's house lived so much better than he was living, so he decides to come return home. And it's a great thing. Uh, I, I read that um, the father is out always looking for his son to return. And one of the reasons, not only because he loved his son, but when a son did this to a father, it was it was like, I want my inheritance now. It was like, I, I wish you were dead. And the custom of that time when this happened was that if they ever saw the son again, they would stone him in the, the, the village, the community. And so the son, the father was always looking for his son's return. I spoke at a conference and they had beautiful bronzes up on the, stage that this man had done. It was in Colorado. And so that whole weekend, I, I'm looking at all of these beautiful bronzes, but the one that caught my eye was this one. And it's called The Father's Love. And it's a depiction of the father running out to greet his son. And, and so when Jack came to pick me up, that on that Sunday, I said, oh, honey, you've got to look at these bronzes. And then I, I went over to this one and I said, isn't that amazing? And um, before I knew it, he had it and was in the car. I, 
I was, but it's in our home. And I mean, I've got Ruth and the love, <laughs> the father's love to remind me of their, of who God is and how much he loves us. I mean, every time I see this, I almost weep because that's how much God loves us. It doesn't matter what we've done. When we return, he, he welcomes us with open arms. But see, the story is not really, I mean, it is a little bit about the prodigal son, but the real story is about his elder brother. So the father is so excited that his son returns that he throws him this lavish party. Well, the elder son had been out in the field, and he comes back, and he realizes that there's this big celebration, and he asks the servants, and they say, oh, your brother's returned, and your father is giving him this party. Well, he refused to go in. The elder son got angry. And so the father comes out to the elder son and says, son, what, what is bothering you? And he begged him to come in and celebrate with him. And this is what the elder son says. All these years, I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time, you've never given me a party. Yet this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes. You celebrate by killing the fatted calf. It's not fear. There are times we say, God, it's not fear. Look what you're doing to them. And look how faithful I've been all my life. And actually, we have become offended by God. There was a story of this elderly missionary couple returning from Africa. They'd been serving for 30 years, and they happened to be on the sh same ship as President Teddy Roosevelt. And, and they were pulling into New York Harbor, and they could see all of the banners and all of the bands playing uh, and all of the people there to welcome President Roosevelt back from his trip. And so the husband of this couple turns to his wife and he said, here we serve God all these years and there's nobody here to welcome us. And his wife turned to him and said, but honey, we're not home yet. So it's easy for us to compare ourselves. You've never given me a party. You've never blessed me like you've blessed them. And here I have trudged in the same place and been faithful for all these many years. And I don't think it's fair. Listen to what the father tells his son, his older son. I think I have, this is a picture, Rembrandt's picture of the return of the prodigal. Now you all, this is the father with the prodigal and the, the face that you can see that's standing up, that's the elder son. You see, he's got his hands clasped and he's looking down. He is not happy at all. But this is what the father says to him. Look, dear son. You have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. <coughs> I 
We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, and now he is found. (coughs) I think it's important that we understand the key part of that is everything I have is I have you and I have been together this whole time. And everything I had was yours. How can you say I've never given you anything? It's like the parable of the uh, the vineyard owner that <coughs> he hired people at nine o'clock in the morning to to work in his vineyard. Then he hired people at noon. Then he hired people at three. And then he hired people at five. And so at the end of the day, they all line up to get their pay. And the men who worked one hour, say from five to six, got as much pay as the men who worked from nine o'clock who worked all day. That's not fair, the people said that worked all day. Why should they get as much money as we did and we did we worked longer? But I like uh I think it's Warren Wiersbe said did I bring my Oh, let me see the study right here. Yeah, thanks. I'm glad this is casual. <laughs> I feel casual with you. I feel very. But this is a. Henry Nowen said. It never crossed my mind that the landowner might have acted on the supposition that those who had worked in the vineyard the whole day would be deeply grateful to have had the opportunity to do work for their boss and even more grateful to see what a generous man he was. Isn't that good? I mean, for those of us who have known the Lord a long time, think of the richness. I mean, this is what the father was trying to tell his older son. Think of all the fellowship and the times we've had together. And think of what your younger brother has had to go through. And so the people who only worked for an hour never got to work in the vineyard, but a little bit for, their, for this landowner. So you all, we need to always examine whenever we start getting feeling like we start feeling that God is unfair. That's a red flag that God is not enough. So what is it that you want that you feel like God has withheld from you? Do you feel offended that God has not given you what you feel like you deserve? Eve was offended because she felt like God was withholding something from her, something good. But Ruth was not offended. Her husband had died. And she saw that her future was to go live with Naomi for the rest of her life. But that did not offend Ruth. She was willing to go to a strange land so that she could seek refuge under the wings of God. God was enough for her. Another barrier, I feel like, is our little faith. The the great story in the scripture is when the disciples were in the boat with Jesus and Jesus was asleep and this 
torrential rain comes, this horrendous storm starts battering the, the little boat. These waves come on. And I mean, four of these disciples were seasoned fishermen who'd been on this lake all of their life. And they were scared to death that they were about to die. And here was Jesus asleep. I love it. And um, so I, I, it had to be Peter. He goes, Jesus, and, you know, <laughs> don't you care that we're perishing? <laughs> and um, Jesus gets up, calms the storm immediately, just by way, his, his word, peace be still. And as I read about that, it's, you know, usually when water it is slowing down, remember it goes back and forth and gets less and less and less. But when Jesus said, peace will be still, it stopped and it was calm. And that's why the disciple says, who is this man? I mean, I think it was the first time. I mean, the whole point of this story is that they thought only God could do this. This must be God. But after Jesus calms the storm, he said, why do you have such little faith? He rebukes them for being afraid. Albert Barnes said this, You should have remembered that the Son of God, the Messiah, was on board. You should not have forgotten that he had power to save and that with him you are safe. Do we feel that way when things, we feel like the waves are getting too much for us? That we're on a storm-tossed sea? Do we get afraid? I was with someone the other day, uh, who's having to deal with an illness and she never knows when it's going to strike and she's fearful all the time that she has vertigo for one thing and I don't know if some of you might have to deal with that. Um, And she's talking about how she just lives in fear. And, And so we talked a little bit about that. We can't live in fear. He wants us to have great faith in him. Someone said, I'd rather be in the midst of the storm in the boat with Jesus than safely on the shore without him. I had a friend, we were going through this study, and she said, I think what I get from that story is that when we're going through really hard times, and we feel like Jesus is asleep, that we just need to go curl up right beside him and go to sleep. I thought that sounds pretty good to me. (laughs) See, I think Eve didn't have great faith in God because he had told her, do not eat. She knew that. She did not believe God. She did not have great faith. But Ruth did. She had great faith in God, enough to go, not knowing what was ahead at all. But because she did, and this is probably one of my favorite chapters in the study, because she had great faith, because she left her idols, 
because she died to herself, because she um, had great faith, and because she was not offended by God, she was able to let God choose for her. Now, this is, I love this part. After Ruth arrives in Bethlehem, she asks Naomi, let me go out into the harvest field to glean. And so we have this scripture. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. And it happened, she found herself in the field that belonged to Boaz. Now, she didn't know anything about anything. She had never been in Bethlehem. She goes out and she thought, well, they're gleaning in this field. I'll just go in this field. But because she trusted God and believed he was enough, she happened into the field of Boaz. God directed her. Now, this is an awesome part. The relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech, while just happened that while she was there, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. Now, how did that happen? Just happened. And so because Ruth was willing to go and let God be her refuge, she was also willing to let him choose for her. And he did. You all, he always does. It's always the best thing when God does it for us. Now, Boaz, I think we all know. Uh, we've got to look at Ruth again. Boaz was an older man, but he was wealthy. And he seemed very kind. He was very kind. In fact, I was reading uh, about Ruth and um, his words to her that we read earlier from Ruth 2.11 he said, I know of everything that you have done, that you've left your country and you've come to live with your mother-in-law and may you be blessed of the Lord. And, and it's, it's great. The verse after that, she falls down at his feet and says, thank you for being so kind to me, a foreigner. And uh, I remember years and years ago, Chuck Swindoll said, you can tell immediately she's going to be a good wife. <laughs> but... The reason she fell down like that was because those were the first kind words she'd heard from anybody. I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's as neat as Naomi was, I think, in terms of, of uh, apparently she loved Ruth. But when they got to, Jeru uh, to Bethlehem and the women are uh, excited to see Naomi again, she said, I went out full and I came back empty. And who was standing right next to her? Ruth. How do you think she felt? I'm here. I'm with you. I told you I'm going to be with you forever. No, I went out full and I came back empty. I have nothing. That's what Naomi said. I love Ruth. Her security was in Christ. Her security was in God. So... God blesses her. Boaz is a neat man. He goes in. He redeems her according to the custom of the day. They marry. I mean, this is just the greatest story. They marry, and they become the great-grandparents of King David. 
She is listed in the lineage of Christ. I think because she believed God was enough. So think of what Ruth would have missed. I mean, we don't, I hate to think what happened to Orpah. Think what Ruth would have missed if she hadn't been willing to trust God with her life and to believe that he would take care of her, to believe that he was enough for her to step out in faith and go with this woman to a foreign country. And I think what I might have missed if I hadn't placed my hand in the Lord's, I would not be here today. So, how would you describe a woman whose God is enough? I think you just need to remember Ruth. She had great faith in her creator God. She relied upon his sufficiency for her and not on her own. Her belief that God was for her and not against her. Her denial of any idols in her life. Her trust in what he wanted for her life was enough. She was content and humble and walked with God. Jim Elliott said this, God always gives his best to those who leave the choice with him. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Indeed, he will. Let's pray. God of your goodness, give me yourself. For you are sufficient for me. I cannot properly ask anything less to be worthy of you. If I were to ask less, I should always be in want. In you alone do I have all. Oh, Father, we do have all in you. Thank you for being the God who is always there for us. Perhaps not always in the way we think you should be, but you are always there for us. You never leave us or forsake us. You're weaving our lives together to fulfill your purposes, Lord. Help us to rest in that, Father. Help us to place our hand in yours firmly and let you be our shepherd to lead us in the path that is right for us. We just ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.